Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. You guys are doing well. Um, Again, like Aaron said, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors over at Coa Brookline. Good to be back with you guys. I think I was here a few months ago, maybe March or so, and then before that, a few months before that. So I love having a little, like, every three to four months I get to come see you all. Um, There's a few passages. There are many passages in Scripture where we read it, and then we say, thanks to the Lord, thanks be to God. But do we really feel like that, right? And this is one of those passages. Um, If you've been with us uh, the past six, seven, eight months, we've been going through the book of Genesis, um, and that's what we do uh, as churches, as a network of churches. You guys as co and do this. You work through books of the Bible typically, um, just kind of go passage by passage. And one of the great things about that is that that book of the Bible gets to set the pace and determine the passage for that week. One of the bad things about that is that book of the Bible gets to set the pace and determine the passage for that part of the week. But one of the best and most difficult parts of the Bible is how real it is. Right? We just read, it, it doesn't sidestep difficult stories. It doesn't kind of hold back its punches. It doesn't gloss over difficult or dark times or gloss over sin in any way. And alternatively, it doesn't try to also then create this rosy picture as if none of those things exist. And sometimes, especially not just as a Christian, but as a preacher, sometimes I wish, I wish stories like this weren't in here, right? I wish this horrible thing, I wish it didn't happen. Like, I kind of wish this wasn't in the Bible. But if we're honest, if these kind of things weren't in the Bible, we would have a book, we would have this uh, word of God that didn't accurately reflect our reality. That doesn't really speak into the things that we experience in our lives, both the good and the bad, both the joys and the sorrows. And so this, this kind of passage seems like that's something out of like a horrific drama right, or a horrible movie. But we all know people in this room, whether it's you yourself or just someone you're sitting beside or someone in your family, that something like this has happened to them. Whether it's murder or deception or injustice or rape, we all know someone that this has happened to. And so as hard as it is to read these stories, whether it's something that happened to you or or someone you know, uh, I want a God that speaks into these things. I want a Bible, I want a religious text, I want the word of God that speaks into the dark things that happen in our lives and the dark things that we see happen in the world around us. I want a God who will meet us in that struggle and tell us through his word that what happened to you wasn't right, what happened to you was evil, and my love and compassion and care for you is equally matched by my desire for justice to be done. I want a Bible, I want a God who speaks like that. We know statistically, again, this has been said a couple of times already, that a large portion of this room has probably experienced something that's similar to what's happened in this story. We know one in five women have experienced rape. We know one in three women have experienced sexual assault of some kind. And one in seven men have experienced sexual assault of some kind. And so I know as we talk about this story, as I say those words, that that some of us in this room, many of us in this room, might just be tempted to kind of like shut down a little bit and not listen. It might be something that's triggering, something that's unfathomable that's happened to you. 
but I truly believe God wants to engage with us about those things. And I truly believe God has something to say for you, to you, about these kind of things, whether this kind of thing has happened to you or not. God, through this story and throughout the whole scriptures, has a lot to say about injustice. Not just this particular injustice, but injustice at large. Because another thing we see in this story, along with the initial act of injustice against Dinah, um, is, is the response to this injustice. In fact, most of the ink isn't just spent mainly on the thing that happened to Dinah, but how people have responded to it. How God's people and how Hamor and Shechem respond to it. And so it's not just a story about injustice committed against Dinah. It's a story about the injustices that were committed after that. It's a story about the inappropriate and inadequate responses to it. And so what we actually see in this passage is that injustice is met with injustice. And no one wins. No one comes out on top. Not that that's the goal. No one feels cared for at the end. No, no one comes out better at the end of this story. No one is truly justified. And so in our time today, that's kind of our main point, our big takeaway, is when injustice is met with injustice, no one wins. When injustice is met with injustice, no one is justified. And side note, if you're here and, and you're not a Christian, let me just kind of slide this across to you as, as we work through this passage and as we think about this idea of justice, especially if maybe like you consider yourself an atheist of some kind, um, I, just, I just challenge you to think through where, where do we get this idea of justice in the first place? Like if we're just all a result of time, matter, and energy, and at the end of the day, things are inconsequential. Yet we have this deep desire for things to be right. And we have this deep desire for justice to be done. C.S. Lewis, he's a, a, a well-known Christian author. Um, he was kind of thinking about this before he was a Christian, and he said that his one mark against God, against Christianity, was that he would look around the world and saw that it was really cruel and unjust. But as he thought about it a little bit more, he was like, where did I get this idea of unjust in the first place? Where did this come from? And he threw out one of his more popular lines, a man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. So as we work through this, God has more to say to you than just about justice, but just, just ponder that idea. In our time today, we're just going to walk through the passage bit by bit. We're going to look at the various characters that are involved and the injustices that are done. We'll look at the five main characters. We'll look at Dinah, Shechem, Hamor, who's Shechem's father, Jacob, and Jacob's son. Along the way, again, we'll look at what they did, but we'll also kind of ask in our own lives, how should we respond to injustice? And not like super applicational, kind of this is what you should do, but more like foundational principles that we should all be in agreement with these three or four things. And then we move forward figuring out how we enact justice. When injustice is met with injustice, no one wins. So let's look at the first one. Starting at verse one, I'm going to read this just again. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land saw her. He seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. In more plain terms, Shechem raped Dinah. There's no doubt about it. When you read the Bible in different translations, when you read it in the original Hebrew, um, that she was raped. When you uh, translate it, it also kind of translates into violence. 
he committed violence against her. And the thing is too, the Bible won't let his victim blame at all. Right? It doesn't say that Dinah went out to see Shechem. No, it says Dinah went out to see the women of the land. The Bible won't let us ask, well, what was she wearing? Or how much did she have to drink that night? Or how uh, late was she staying out? Or why was she in that part of town? Dinah at this point is likely a 14, 15, 16-year-old girl. And Shechem is the one that's entirely at fault. And he views her like an object of passion or an object of lust, someone to be used for his own personal gain and his own personal satisfaction. The text says that he saw her and seized her and lay with her, and then his soul was drawn to her, and then he spoke tenderly to her. So not only did he commit this initial act that was disgusting and horrible, he tried to, um, in a narcissistic way, kind of smooth things over to his advantage, kind of make everything seem like it can maybe go away. He used his power and influence to try to right the wrong or try to kind of cover it up. It's, it's literally a case study of someone that's sick and twisted and narcissistic. And so this is the first injustice we see in this passage. And to be very clear, this, this kind of injustice breaks the heart of God. Maybe that should go without saying, but let's be very clear. This kind of injustice breaks the heart of God. To see two people made in the image of God, to see one of them objectify and violate the other just breaks the heart of God. And not only does it break his heart, he desires justice to be done. He desires justice to be done. And oftentimes God brings about justice through his people, through governing structures and, and other means. We, we have eternal justice that, that works itself out in heaven and in hell, but we also have temporary justice that God wants us to enact today. Micah 6, God has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? Isaiah 1, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. And so not only does God grieve when this happens, he commands us do something about it. We all need to do something about this kind of injustice. It grieves him when his people do nothing about it or he mishandle it great, greatly because he's commanded us to do something. And so don't mistakenly fall into the camp or the idea that not acting on injustice when you see it, when you see someone else experience it, is anything except for disobeying God who commanded us to do something about it. Silence isn't just silence, it's disobedience. It's the very thing that God has called us to do. And it's more than just virtue signaling. Right? He's not just calling us to kind of virtue signal, whether it's posting something on Instagram or um, just a public statement. Like, virtue signaling, side note, virtue signaling, uh, for all its negatives, the one positive is like, yes, people are trying to say, hey, I'm a virtuous person. But the one positive is that we have a group of people that kind of finally felt like we have to do something. Like, I don't know what it is, but we got to do something. Something has to be done about this. Right, whether it's the George Floyd movement or the Larry Nassar trial or, or people um, in those scenarios, we see those things and we say we have to do something. And so step one, when we think about enacting justice, when we think about justice is acknowledging the fact that God wants us to do justice. It's not just some worldly construct tied to the culture of our day. This is something that comes from the very depths of God's heart. It is part of who he is and part of who he wants his people to be. That's the starting point for enacting justice. 
And so for us, it's not just acknowledging that God wants us to do justice, it's do you want us to do justice? Do you want to do justice? Right? Does your hard heart speed up in anger or slow down in sadness when you see that once every 68 seconds someone in America is sexually abused or that uh, you see another black man improperly incarcerated or that you see that there are over a million babies aborted a year, yet there are two to three million people lining up to adopt? Or when you see every five days families, children, individuals killed in mass shootings, In our our day, we might become numb to those things because they happen so frequently. Sometimes you see it on the news and it's just like, yeah, another one. It's another one. But these things never become numb to the heart of God. And so are you seeing these things and either internally or externally, are you kind of screaming, we have to do something. God wants us to do something. God wants us to respond. And we see in our passages with Dinah, we see the responses of the people in this passage and and they in part say we have to do something, but their approach is wrong. Their starting point isn't the heart of God. Their starting point is not care and compassion and for, for Dinah, love for Dinah, desiring justice for Dinah. Their motivations aren't genuine. Every single character is off, every single one. One commentary noted that Shechem viewed her as an object of passion. Hamor viewed her as a bargaining chip. Brothers viewed her as a source of moral outrage. And Jacob viewed her with passive indifference. And so all these characters, they saw this injustice, but they didn't respond in the right way. They responded to the injustice with injustice. And remember, when injustice is met with injustice, no one wins. When injustice is met with injustice, no one is justified. So the next character to consider is Hamor, Shechem's father. One of the themes, if you've been tracking with us in Genesis so far, has been like father, like son. We've seen the way that kind of family bonds, whether it's blood family or just someone that you consider family, how their characteristics, their tendencies, their sins, but also their strengths are something that carry over. And we'll see in a minute how that's painfully true with Jacob and his sons, but it's also true with Hamor and Shechem. Shechem, if you notice, he doesn't seem to think he's done anything wrong. And neither does his father. There's no hint of good fatherly advice or correction or what should be, in this case, severe punishment. No, what does he do? He tries to appease his son in the injustice and use it to his own advantage at the expense of Dinah. Look at verses 8 through 10. I'm going to read this again. Hamor is talking to Jacob's sons, and he says this. Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give us, give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. And then later in, in the passage, verse 23, he says to all the people in the town, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. So Hamor sees this as nothing more than an opportunity to prosper at the expense of another. And most disturbing of all, he seems to have no sense of right or wrong. No sense that something horrible has been done to Nina. No care and compassion for the thing that's been done to Dinah by his own son. And it, it sounds horrible. And, and honestly, I know people, I'm assuming everyone in this room has not been in the place of more in this story. 
but it can be really easy for us to selfishly think about situations like this or other situations. What can I get out of this? Like Hamor's reaction is terrible and disturbing, but that undergirding selfish emotion is there in all of us. And so step one of enacting justice was understanding that God desires justice. Step two is a reorientation from you to them. Step two is a reorientation from you to them. Don't fall into the trap of what can I get out of this or how does this make me look? God's concern and care and compassion in these moments is is for the oppressed and for those whom the injustice has been committed against and so should our care and compassion and time and energy be. You'll notice too, Hamor is interestedly talking to Jacob's sons instead of Jacob. How Jacob handles the situation might, might be worst of all other than Shechem. Maybe makes him the most culpable other than Shechem. Verses five through eight, I'm not gonna read it, but if you look, Jacob, the man who defiled and committed against injustice, injustice against your daughter is at your doorstep. And his father is there too. Jacob, you have the opportunity not to reverse what's been done, but to start the process of enacting justice rightly. To start the process of caring for Dinah well and valuing her well and <clears throat> loving her and helping her heal. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that at all. And to be honest, I didn't read into like, what would that process look like? Like if this scenario happened, whether it was Old Testament law or the cultural norms of the day, like how would someone go about kind of enforcing and enacting justice at that time and day? But I can tell you for sure his response was not the right one. He was silent. He was completely silent. Doesn't, doesn't seem to get mad. He's not, he's not seeing red. Right? He doesn't call Shechem and his father out. He doesn't step up as the patriarch and leader of the family to protect them, to protect his daughter. He doesn't stand up for his daughter. He kind of just seems like he doesn't overly care. And it's especially painful because if you've been tracking with us, we know this can be an emotive man. Jacob can be an emotive man. He's shown great emotion before in the past. And we know later, you'll, you'll hear this, I think in the next few weeks, that Jacob thinks one of his sons has died and he absolutely loses it. He weeps. He loses his mind. But for this, he seems to show nothing. He's silent and indifferent. And maybe there's like maybe this idea that maybe you can give him the benefit of the doubt because back in that day, at some point, the patriarch, the father of the family, they got too old and, and the sons would take over. And so in a moment like this, the sons would then go and speak on their father's behalf. But Jacob, as the story continues on in Genesis, is still clearly in charge and is still clearly the patriarch of the family. And at the end of the day, his motivations in his heart are revealed. Look at verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, my numbers are few. And if they gather against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. I didn't do it, but I heard a lot of me's and my's. I wonder how many times it says me and my. Not any sense about being upset about Dinah. Not, any, not even like a second thought, like how is she? And we know like the books of the Bible don't um, necessarily record every single bit of conversation that happened, but I'm sure that that would have been a main point if it was brought up by Jacob. He's concerned about himself. 
And, and Jacob's response, we talked about this a little bit already, is that he's silent and inactive toward injustice. And we know that silence and inaction towards injustice is not just silence and inaction, it's injustice. It's disobedience. Remember, God tells us to seek justice, correct oppression. I'm sure many of us, whether it's MLK Jr. or some other human rights activist, can, can remember a quote or two that's like, silence in the face of injustice is injustice. Janetta Sagan, my, my favorite quote of that kind, she's a great human rights activist, said, silence in the face of injustice is complicity with the oppressor. And so Jacob was complicit in what happened. Jacob was complicit in the way he didn't respond. Injustice was met with injustice and no one won. The last characters, character characters I want to look at are Jacob's sons, then his brothers. As both a, a brother to a younger sister and a father, I, I, can, I can understand their anger. Like I'm sure a lot of us in this room can understand their anger. And, and actually, I, I, somewhat ironically, this is like the, maybe the only slimmer of kind of good that is happening in this story. Like, like finally, someone is angry. Finally, someone seems to care for what happened to Dinah. It's good that they're mad. They should be mad. They should be outraged. But in their attempt to enact injustice, they go too far and ironically became somewhat the same as Shechem. Many of the Bible scholars kind of noted in pithy ways that, that the same instrument that Shechem used to commit the injustice is the same instrument that Simeon and Levi used to commit the injustice. On top of that, they use the very covenantal sign that God has given to his people to remind them, you are mine and I am yours as a tool for injustice. And this is also where Jacob's sons are acting like Jacob. There's a pretty tricky thing to do, to deceive them in that way, to trick them in that way. And so what happened to Dinah was terrible. It was horrid and it, it scarred her for the rest of her life, I'm sure, but killing every male in the city and plundering everything and using God's covenantal sign for evil is not the proper response. That's responding to injustice with injustice. And ultimately what they did was use God and the things of God rather than involve God. And that's the third way to enact justice properly. It's simple, but it's not necessarily intuitive. Involve God, don't use God. Notice in this passage, God isn't mentioned once. It's not even acknowledged in any way. And then notice coincidentally, or not so coincidentally, that things go horribly wrong. And, and here's the point behind that. Yes, involve God as you act in justice, but he's not just a consultant in the matter. He's not someone you pay for an hour of time just to get his thoughts. He's the foundation of enacting justice. What I mean by that is if we're here and we're Christians and we believe in God and we believe that God has a heart for justice and it's something that ultimately flows forth from him, then we can't have true justice apart from God. Those who have been sinned against and injustice is committed against cannot experience justice, true redemption apart from God. And so it's foolish as us for Christians to try to enact justice of any kind without him. To do so leads us to what we see in Genesis 34. No one consulted him. No one asked him. 
No one prayed to him. No one thought, you know what? Maybe we should pray and ask God first. Like, how should we respond? What should we do about this in a way that is godly and honors you, Lord? In a way that cares for Dinah properly and well and doesn't use her like an object just like Shechem did? They didn't do that. And it led them to more injustice. And when injustice is met with injustice, no one wins. So to close, begin to close, sorry. The most heartbreaking thing is not just what happened to Dinah, but it's the fact that throughout the story, no one valued her properly. No one seemed to love her properly. No one sees her with proper dignity and respect. No one sees her as a valuable member of the family. No one sees her as a loved child of God. No one brings justice to her rightly. This story ends in a really, really unsatisfying way. I don't know if you feel like that too, but that's how I felt when I first read it the first few times. Like what what a terrible way to end a chapter. It just leaves this question out there. It begs the question, who will bring forth justice for Dinah? Who's going to do it? Who's going to care for Dinah properly? Because no one does in this story. Not her father, not her sons, not Shechem, not Hamor. No one. Who will value and love Dinah properly? The story, it painfully reminds me of, of Larry Nasser's trial years ago, if you remember that. And something Rachel Denhollander said at that trial. Um, Rachel was the first victim to publicly come forward with allegations against Larry Nasser, and she was the final of 156 victims to testify against him. Little girls, that what was done to them matters. They're seen and valued, that they are not alone and they are not unprotected. Tell us that what was done to us matters, that we are known, we are worth everything, worth the greatest protection the law can offer, the greatest measure of justice valuable. It's very powerful, but it begs the question, who can do that? Can I do that? Enact the greatest measure of justice valuable? Can you do that? Only one. And it's not just me and it's not just you. It's not just the families of these girls. It's the one who experienced the ultimate justice on your behalf. It's the one who will tell people who have experienced sexual assault and sexual violence and abuse and injustice of any kind that I see you, I know you, and I value you, and I feel what you feel because I've had it happen to me. The answer is who's gonna value love and, and, and give proper justice to Dinah is Jesus. It's Jesus. And that's not some gimmicky Sunday school answer. It's who Jesus is. It's what he's always done and what he always will do. Who will value, who will declare worthy, who will see them and know them and tell them they're worth everything. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who writes humanity's wrongs. Jesus is the one who sees, knows, and values, and cherishes. Jesus is the one who writes injustices committed against you, against me, against others, and writes the injustices and the sins you've committed against other people not just because he's a compassionate man, but because he knows what it's like. He's done this time and time again. I want to show us something. One more thing as we close. Remember, remember where we are in our passage. Remember geographically where we are. At the end of Genesis 33, it ended with Jacob settling in the city of Shechem, which it may be that Hamor named his son after the city or vice versa. 
But later it was renamed to Sakar. And at some point in time over the years, Jacob builds a well there. And some of you who know your Bibles might connect some beautiful dots in just a second. In the most beautiful, poetic fashion, 2,000 years later, Jesus meets a woman at this well in the same city as Dinah, the same spot where the injustice against Dinah was committed. And Jesus brings forth the love, the compassion, the value, and the worth that Jacob, Shechem, and Jacob's sons did not. John 4, Jesus at the well, um, Jesus and the woman at the well gives us a picture of how Dinah should have been treated. A woman comes to the well in the middle of the day to draw water and, and Jesus engages with her and talks with her. And it's quickly revealed that this woman has had five husbands and is currently with someone that is not her husband. And now this may be in part because of some sinful decisions that she's made in her life. But we also know that at that point in time in that culture, women couldn't initiate divorce. And so at the very least, this is something that's been done to her. And like poetry in motion, this woman reveals that she considers herself a descendant of Jacob. And so Jesus is face-to-face with someone related to Dinah. Jesus is face-to-face with someone directly related to Dinah. And what did he offer this woman? He offered himself as a living sacrifice, as living water. And he tells this woman that he is the Messiah that she is waiting for. And just as beautifully, this woman is the first person in the gospel of John to be told this message. What does she do? She runs off and goes and tells others saying, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. In other words, come meet this man, Jesus, who knows all that I've done, who knows all that's been done against me. And yet he values me. He loves me. He knows me. He cares for me. He has compassion for me. And so who's going to tell these little girls and women and men and everyone who's experienced injustice that they matter? They're valued and seen. Jesus will. Jesus does. Rachel, again in the courtroom at the very end of her speech, turned directly towards Larry Nasser. Here's what she said. She said, Larry, you spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done and all its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. The final step to enacting justice is realizing that for all parties, all parties involved, grace and forgiveness is made eternally possible through Jesus Christ. And that's hard. That's hard, right? Almost every bone in my body wants the opposite to happen. Almost every bone in my body wants to do the opposite thing there. But that's the gospel. 
That's the gospel. And when we say we don't want men or women who do these kind of things to receive eternal grace and forgiveness through and because of Christ, we say that blood's Christ, blood, Christ's blood and sacrifice is not enough. And at the end of the day, I want a gospel. I want a savior. I want a sacrifice that is enough to cover every sin. Every sin. That points more to the beauty and power and love of God through Christ than it does the sinfulness of man. I want the love of Christ to have the final say, not the sin of man. There's hope both for the one who has received the injustice and the one that has committed the injustice in and through Christ Jesus. When injustice is met with injustice, no one wins. We're gonna transition now to a time of communion. Um, The first thing I wanna mention though, Aaron noted at first, if you have experienced this kind of thing and whether you've processed it or not processed it, whether you've told people or not told people, we wanna talk with you about that. Um, So you can find Aaron and any of the people he mentioned. If you wanna be a little more discreet than that, which I understand completely, there's a connection card somewhere around your seat and you can write on it, I want to talk about Genesis 34. Just write on it, I want to talk about Genesis 34 and then your email, your phone number, whatever your, your name, whatever your best way is to contact you. When injustice is met with injustice, no one wins. Let's pray.